This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Have you ever wished that you had a direct line to your pediatrician to ask all the questions that constantly crop up while parenting? We sure have. That's why we launched the Bites of Health podcast. Every morning, we'll answer a commonly asked pediatric question in five minutes or less. You can tune in while you're making your second cup of coffee or from the school drop-off line. So be sure to tune in to Bites of Health, streaming now. Welcome to Emotional Badass, where Moxie meets Mindful. I'm Nikki Eisenhower, your host, life coach, and psychotherapist. And on the episode today, I'm discussing subtle signs of domestic abuse. So I'm going to share today about some of my own story. And if you're newer as a listener, when I'm sharing myself, I'm not really sharing myself. Yes, it is my story. It's, it's my Nikki story. But the things that I choose to share are really very similar to stories I have heard client after client, experience after experience. So when I share, I'm really sharing all of our stories. When we are in pain, if we are in an abusive relationship, it's very isolating and we can feel like we are the only person in the world experiencing such things and we can feel that we are the only person in the world having our thoughts about experiencing such things. I want you to know that your smarts, your intelligence has nothing to do with finding yourself in an abusive relationship. That over the course of my career, strong, smart women and men have fallen prey to these dysfunctional dynamics. Now, most of the time, what you're hearing me talk about on this show and in my work is about healing our childhood wounds. But domestic violence, domestic abuse is really what continues the cycles of chaos, of dysfunction, of nervous systems being unsettled and activated, of living not understanding what a healthy boundary is or how to act from a place of self-worth to continue to grow self-worth. Those of you that are newer, Chris is my third husband. And when I share about any of my relationship history, you might notice, those of you that are empaths especially, that I'm intentionally vague. That's not to skirt any issues or any vulnerability there on my part. That's my commitment to you that I'm showing you my vulnerable story to help you embrace more of your own vulnerable story and those of others in the world so we can move through with more compassion, more understanding, more healing, and more peace. So when I'm vague, I'm just protecting the privacy of the other players in my story. Now, domestic abuse is multi-layered. The real tricky part is understanding that an abuser and a victim do fit together 
like unfortunate puzzle pieces. An abuser can't abuse without a victim. And a victim cannot be in existence without an abuser. To get out of an abusive relationship is really a willful and intentional, a deliberate changing of the shape of our own puzzle piece so that we no longer fit so nicely with that abuser. For the sake of safety, for anyone who is listening that might be in relationship with a scary person, I want you to know that movies and TV can make it seem like empowerment in such a relationship is about standing tall and finding your backbone and saying, oh, hell no, and having some kind of Stella got her groove back moment, like lighting a car on fire or some kind of scene of throwing an abuser's clothing out a window, changing the locks and yelling snarky messages that roar some kind of feminine power and sass. Movies, our cinema loves to show this type of scene. But if you are in a scary situation, you are with someone who at times frightens you. Please be strategic and work on a plan. I'm going to go over some statistics from the National Coalition Against Domestic Violence. So I'm just going to run through these. Let them wash over you. This is from a sheet that you can find on their website. These are the national statistics. You can go onto their website and view the state-by-state statistics also. NCADV, the National Coalition Against Domestic Violence. So on average, nearly 20 people per minute in the United States are physically abused by an intimate partner. During one year, this equates to more than 10 million women and men. One in four women and one in nine men experience severe intimate partner physical violence. One in three women and one in four men have experienced some form of physical violence by an intimate partner. And this includes a range of behaviors, slapping, shoving, pushing, and in some cases might not even be considered domestic violence legally. One in seven women and one in 25 men have been injured by an intimate partner. One in 10 women have been raped by an intimate partner. Data is unavailable on males. One in four women and one in seven men have been victims of severe physical violence, being beaten, burned, or strangled. One in seven women and one in 18 men have been stalked by an intimate partner during their lifetime to the point in which they felt very fearful or believed that they or someone close to them would be harmed or killed. On a typical day, there are more than 20,000 phone calls placed to domestic violence hotlines nationwide. Women between the ages of 18 to 24 are most commonly abused by an intimate partner. Domestic victimization, of course, correlates with a higher rate of depression and suicidal behavior. There are more statistics on rape, on stalking, on homicide. 72% of all murder suicides involve an intimate partner. 94% of the victims of murder-suicides are female. 
We believe that one in 15 children are exposed to intimate partner violence each year, and 90% of these children are eyewitnesses to this violence. There's an economic impact of abuse. We believe there are 8 million days of paid work each year that's lost due to domestic violence, that someone that's hurt can't come in that calls into their job. We think the cost financially is $8.3 billion per year in the United States. 21 to 60% of victims of intimate partner violence lose their jobs due to reasons stemming from the abuse. Between 2003 and 2008, 142 women were murdered in their workplace by their abuser. The impacts are so much more expansive than that on our human development, on our human tribe. I gave you the statistics. Now let's go over the signs. Now, one of the most common things I hear from a highly sensitive person who is dating is they want to be on guard for red flags. So this is a list of red flags. A fast coming on strong love bombing type of beginning to a relationship. Now, some very healthy relationships can also start this way. I've seen it. They are real. But almost every Abusive relationship starts with an intensity that is almost instant. In my own most dysfunctional relationship, I got wined and dined, pursued. And that makes sense that being pursued would work for me. That fit my puzzle piece. My biological dad had abandoned me before 10. I had been trying to chase my dad down. So to have a man chasing me Gave me all kinds of feel-good feelings from head to toe. I was 17. He was 24. So this was not a boy. This was a man pursuing me. From that wound, I was caught immediately. For context, I don't know that I've ever shared this before. I thought his age at 17 was better for me because I had actually taken a 27-year-old man to prom. My joke is because why not close out high school with all the rumors you can really get going? And that's kind of how I left high school. He was a waiter and I was a waitress. And we worked together. So he told every male at work that they better not barely look at me. He positioned himself as my protector, picking up that I had felt pretty protection less and lost. See the puzzle pieces fitting scarily together? This relationship would last almost eight years. It's important to understand that domestic violence happens when love and kindness is absent. And it also happens when genuine care and love are present, making it incredibly confusing to figure out. Now, I didn't have the first iota of what a boundary was back then. And I didn't have the first idea about what it was to assert myself and to ask somebody to slow down when coming on strong. That energy came at me as a goodness, as a care that I was starving for. So I can look back and understand I wouldn't have even had the thought of slowing down or blocking when I felt starved for attention and care. This is why those of us that grow up neglected and abused 
it's almost like predatory people can see a neon sign flashing over our heads. And we don't know that until we know it. They can sort of sniff us out. Another sign of domestic abuse is being possessive. Someone who's crossing a lot of boundaries and leaning into possessiveness, wanting to possess another person, not wanting that own person's personhood to possess themselves. Such a person will call and visit work without asking or show up at your house, maybe with flowers, but without calling to see if you were available or if you had other plans. And the excuse often sounds like, I just love you so much. I don't want to lose you. I was thinking about you and I wanted to check on you because I care. This can escalate to showing up at your work, sometimes creating chaos till you lose a job to create more codependence and to shrink outside support networks that can combat and confront differences as they witness the victim change as they get deeper and deeper into such a relationship. Now, I wouldn't have been able to spot this kind of red flag in my youth because my own parents were, my mom and my adoptive dad, and excuse my inner 12-year-old expression, but that's where it comes from, they were up each other's butts through the phone. Once cell phones were a thing, it was every 30 minutes, every 45 minutes if they were apart constantly. And I hated this as an adolescent. I couldn't stand it. I thought it was obnoxious and ridiculous and way over the top. But it also normalized this kind of enmeshment. So reporting to a boyfriend at 17 and 18 and 19 seemed exactly right, seemed next. I had had to report to my parents in a way that hadn't fully allowed me to step into my full adultness. Now, how many of you out there will say that you feel like an imposter adult? Is this part of the reason? So I, like all of you out there, I did what I knew. And I knew control. I knew enmeshment. I knew feeling ashamed all the time. So I participated. I didn't push back. Of course, a boyfriend would want to call me an obsessive, obnoxious amount of times and want me to contact them. I had no idea I was digging my own hole deeper and deeper with every passing, intrusive, and inappropriate, boundaryless phone call. Now, at some point, possessive turns to controlling. An abuser can be hyper aware of the time down to the minutes that it should take for a partner to do a thing. So if I were to say, oh, I'm going to go gas up the car, but I took 40 minutes and that sort of should have taken 15 minutes, then I would know that I was going to be questioned and I should have an excuse and a reason. I wasn't allowed to be free with myself or free with my time. A controlling person does not allow another person to be late. Lateness to a controller does not mean, oh, life got in the way or there was traffic or a wreck. I'm so glad you're here. Lateness to a possessive controller brings suspicion. A controlling person feels entitled to know where another is at all times. 
They will try to convince people that worry is an expression of love, that control is an expression of love. An abuser insists on you asking permission before doing something, making an adult into a child. And when we already feel like an imposter adult, that really, really works in a dysfunctional way. In a controlling relationship, a person is not allowed to do things that make the other person uncomfortable, which insidiously shrinks a victim's world. A victim is expected to fulfill every waking need of the partner. The lesson from a controlling person is more codependency now. Lose yourself to me. I am your everything. When I look back at my life, this was one of the deepest, darkest, heaviest depressions. I believe I was born with the temperament to be uniquely an individualist. And I believe that's my nature, my actual nature, how I was born. So when I was controlled and I was allowing myself to be controlled, but I didn't know it, I felt the most hopeless because I was denying my true self, denying my intuition and denying my nature. There's no other way to be except depressed. Depressed was right. I was depressing like a tongue depressor, like a doctor presses on your tongue to see your throat when you have a sore throat. I was depressing myself by going along with these scripts. I had no internal boundaries. Whatever he told me became the truth because the message was mine didn't count, which fit my childhood. This felt like a slow death, a leaking of life force daily, every minute of my life. By being controlling, it gives the controller permission to also be constantly critical. So five minutes late has to mean you didn't care. Now I get to be critical. I get to criticize you, your care or your organization or how slowly you drive or how much of an airhead you might be as you shop at the store. It's just an opening to criticize because if you feel small, you won't go anywhere. Another red flag, any partner that wants their partner isolated. A controlling person who wants to isolate accuses and creates stories that their partner's support systems are causing trouble with the relationship. So there's pushback against friends, family, therapists. There's encouragement to cut people off or to orchestrate a reason to move where no support exists, like out of state or even to another country. It's weird to use the word favorite here. It's it's not a favorite memory. It's not a happy memory, but it was a turning point kind of memory in my life. As a couples therapist, I've mentioned her before. If you listen to all the episodes, her name was Ann Teachworth, and she was the mother of six boys. This was a strong woman, and she stood on her tippy toes in front of this man that I was with, and she shouted at him to leave me alone. She told him, she's no match for you right now. If you want to yell at somebody, you yell at me. I can take it from you. She can't. And he ran out of the office. I had never seen someone stand up to him in such a way. 
Now he banished me from the office and I continued to go because I could tell that she had my best interest where he didn't. He started cutting me off from money, even my own credit card at this time, so I could no longer pay her. And it was after my jaw surgery when I had taken a leave from work to recover from my massive surgery so I didn't have any funds. I was still a college student too. Most therapists are taught never to do such a thing. And it changed my life. Those of you who are therapists out there, I know, I know you were waiting for me to do a coaching certification program. I'm working on it. It's coming. If you're interested in what kind of therapist I am, read Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning. He says we are not meant to be sheep. We are meant to be brave. We are meant to do brave things and to step outside of the box. And Anne Teachworth, she did that for me that day. And it changed my life. She died a few years ago with me still owing her money. It took me nearly 10 years after knowing her to get it together enough, and I wanted to pay her back. And when I reached out, she had passed. So wherever Anne is, I hope that she can see and feel me and hear me because I am free and I am happy now. Another red flag is blaming others. An abuser does not take responsibility for themselves, does not see fault in themselves. Any bad behavior, verbally, physically, or sexually, they will talk themselves and anyone who is in the vicinity into believing that there is a good reason for those things. The abuser, in my early years, any failing that I had, whether I tripped or dropped something, or didn't get an A on a test, any failing, even being five minutes late, becomes a good reason to engage abusively. This is to teach someone that all the bad things are your fault and never the perpetrators. By making others responsible, they will say things like, you made me do it. There is an absolute unwillingness to work on self. If they go to therapy, it's to check a box and get somebody off their back. It's not out of a deep or real desire to change because they're good the way that they are. Even if it's subtle, there tends to be an underlying arrogance that their way of being is a-okay. Anyone with a problem with them needs to do the changing. At best, I've seen abusers show up and say the right things, but have no follow-through. In Al-Anon, there's a saying, turn down the volume and look at the behavior. So if there's an abuser in your life, you can turn down all the schmoozing talk and just look at what's happening. What are they doing? Because often what they're doing is they're living their life the way they want to live it with no real adjustment or concession or meeting you halfway or even quarterway. Another red flag is hypersensitivity. Now, that word might catch y'all. A lot of you are highly sensitive people. I've heard it said that the difference between high sensitivity and hypersensitivity is that high sensitivity is responding to what is. Hypersensitivity is responding to what isn't. The absence of something. 
So hypersensitivity is easily offended, easily insulted. This is really a permission to go into victim mode, to justify building a rage. And this can be a subconscious or a conscious attempt to give the self permission to explode now or later. This can look like no sense of humor. Hypersensitive controllers who are abusive cannot take a joke about themselves. If they do publicly, they will punish somebody for it later. Later that night, later next year at Christmas, later. Hypersensitivity cannot take the slightest lighthearted teasing. Bad sportsmanship is a great example of this. Often abusers will refuse to play games like board games or backyard family style sports. They'll only play if they are the best and they believe they can dominate because they cannot handle not being the winner. They cannot handle not being on top. And as I say that, yeah, I'm going to throw this in like this too. That can show up sexually too. That often abusers will never take a, a passive position even sexually. They only want to dominate or be in the power position. It's a message of, you were the vulnerable one. I will never be vulnerable to you. Abusers are deeply, deeply insecure individuals, fronting and putting on as if they are the most secure. Highly sensitive people often fall for the wounded inner child that they see. And they allow the wounded inner child that they see to be an excuse for the grown adult that's showing up. That is how we show up with our puzzle piece to fit their puzzle piece. Cruelty to animals or children, very common with abusive human beings. This means brutal punishments and expectations for children and animals that are unrealistic, like a toddler wetting the bed or a puppy chewing a shoe when it hasn't been directed and trained to chew on a chew toy. While they can't take any kind of lighthearted teasing, they sure can dish out harsh teasing. They often like to poke and poke and poke and poke till somebody cries or is upset. Force is another red flag that's very important to know about. This can be emotionally, physically, or sexually. An abuser wants what they want when they want it, and they want it now. And they expect to be served, which makes a love interest or a partner or a spouse, not a partner, but a servant, an object to be used, not a person with free will and dreams and desires and feelings thoughts that are all their own. There are the obvious ways that are forceful, that are easy to spot. And then there's sneaky force, often in the form of sabotage. Sabotaging a job, picking a fight before a job interview. Sabotaging any opportunity to change, to grow, to evolve. Because if you change and you grow and evolve past the abuser's control, you won't stay. You will get the hell out. Another red flag, verbal abuse. This can be in the form of being critical fairly constantly. 
Abusers tend to not know how to be kind in truth. They tend to justify hard truth and tough love. And I'm a tough love gal. I give you a lot of tough love on this mic. Tough love is not degrading in any way. When someone says tough love and is degrading, they are manipulating what tough love is. Screaming the F word because you drop your drink or stub your toe and releasing that explosive expression is a release. That's very different than sending FU energy at another person because your toe got stubbed. Verbal abuse is being called names. And if you don't know this, I hope you believe me when I say this. There are relationships where no matter what the fight is, what the argument is, what the disagreement is, there are no low blows. There is no name calling. And there is reparative action taken when heads are cooler. In abusive relationships, another red flag are rigid roles and no swapping or sharing of roles. In my own abusive relationship, he was not going to do anything that he felt like was demeaning or was woman's work. He wasn't going to clean a litter pan. That was on me. He would have never allowed me to be the breadwinner or to work a lot outside of the home. Rigid roles and no sharing of roles when things get tough. Another red flag, sudden mood, tone, or energy changes. And what results is that the victim learns to be on guard in mind and in body, hypervigilant. This gives the abuser an upper hand of control because the victim's nervous system gets increasingly heightened and trained to walk on eggshells, stuff feelings, stuff conflict, stuff problems. The more and more and more fatigued, exhausted, that this human being becomes because of this toxic environment and exposure, the less energy we have to leave, the more shameful we feel, the more we stay, the more the hole digs deeper. Often an abuser will admit to violence in the past with partners, but will spin a story that it was all for very good reasons that are very, very reasonable. And we'll spin it as if they were really victimized. And if they were really abusive, it would have been much, much worse than what it was. So they're not abusive. My abuser described this to me to a T. Even described what ended his relationship with his ex. Was he came at her and she picked up an old phone. Remember the old phones that you could turn It had the numbers and it would go in such a pleasing, really nice way. She picked a big old heavy phone up and threw it at his face and she ran. And that was the end of their relationship. That didn't scare me. I didn't really process that. It was just a thing like the sky is blue. I didn't know what to do with that once I was in the relationship. Another red flag, threats of violence. Now, I grew up at a time, I'm in my 40s, where it was no big thing to be upset with somebody and go, oh my God, I'm so pissed at you, I'm going to kill you. We don't do that anymore. Partly because of this reason. Because we've got to learn that when somebody says that, 
It means action and that those types of things can't just be throwaways. Now, in fairness to the human condition, we all say stupid, regretful things sometimes, even abusive things. There is no human on earth who has never done an abusive thing, y'all. But it is in the consistency and the interplay of all the things on this list that I'm talking about. It's in the pervasive pattern of this. Acting is encouraged within a dysfunctional relationship. The victim becomes manipulative. Yep, that's icky to consider, isn't it? I hated facing that because I think of myself as a truth speaker and honest and trying really hard not to lie to people. It's the same in codependency when we make excuses. Oh, I can't go to that. I feel sick. Where really what we're doing is we're making ourselves sick because we don't know proper boundaries. So we don't know how to be truthful. And maybe you've never considered boundaries in such a way. But to be truthful with ourselves and with others, we need to know how to do boundaries. If I had had proper boundaries, I would not have participated in acting. And going from a terrible car ride where I was crying and being berated and shamed to one of his family events where I'm expected to get out of the car and socialize. That's a lie. And I participated in that. Blocking behaviors is the last red flag that I'm going to talk about. And I experienced so many of these. Taking keys is a blocking behavior. It is abusive. You have a right to leave if you were an adult You have a right to leave anywhere at any time. If you don't, you are in a controlling relationship. Now, my parents had taken my keys a few years before when I was a teenager. And they'd take my keys anytime they wanted, just if they were miffed with me, not for any really good reason, just to pull a power move. So it was normal for me seemed white flaggish when it should have at least been pink, if not glaring red. Blocking doorways and exits, abusive. If you have your covers on, that's you blocking the cold. So removing that cover to expose you, ripping covers off in the middle of the night, it's a very typical, often unspoken abuser move. It gives the message, you will attend to me when I say, I am dominant here. You are not. You do not get to decide if and when you sleep. If I am upset, you will be upset too. There is no boundary between these emotions from one to another. In an abusive relationship, the abuser says it is the other's job to absorb those feelings. Think of the implications of that for highly sensitive people and empaths. It's part of why we get so heavy and bogged down, which makes it so much harder to change this dynamic and get out. Years and years of this type of controlling, limiting, shaming behavior creates a situation where the victims lose the ability to speak up, to say no. They don't even know that they have the right to say no. I didn't. I didn't know I could say enough. I didn't know that I could leave. I was terrified to leave. Victims are conditioned to receive worse and worse behavior. It's insidious. It's a slippery slope. They wind up feeling very stuck. And that's a dangerous spot. Highly sensitive people, I want you to know that as a tribe, we tend to be overly loyal. 
because we feel bonds very deeply. And if we have attachment wounds, we won't just bond, we will cling. And without therapy, without an education in what is healthy, what is not, what is dysfunctional and what is not, what is okay and what is not, we will cling just to cling. Doesn't matter how toxic because it's just something. Those of us that were neglected are at high risk for this. It was blocking behaviors that pushed me over the edge when I was 23. He backed me into a corner and I somehow squirmed away. Then I wound up in the tiny kitchen against the sink. He wasn't touching me because I was leaning into the sink, but he had an arm on either side of me so I couldn't go anywhere. I was pinned. And I've never been a pushover, even though I didn't know what to do with these red flags that I didn't even see. I've been a fighter in spirit, even when I didn't know how to appropriately fight for myself or knew what was right or healthy. In that moment, I knew it was escalating. I knew it was bad news. He was a former police officer and told me that no one would believe me when I threatened to call the police. And I had been raised by a good old boy police family. So I very much believed what he said. And I was too ashamed to go to my bully, the police officer in my family, to ask for help. I was too ashamed to ask anyone for help. I thought I was too smart to be in such a situation. So I blamed myself for being there. And blame is so different than taking responsibility for my choices. By blaming, I dug the hole deeper. As I was pinned to the sink in the kitchen, my eyes darted to the right, which happened to be the knife drawer. And I knew it was the knife drawer. I was assessing what to do. I remember thinking that my bad jaw, I've had multiple surgeries on it. There's an episode on that in the Patreon if you're interested. But I remember thinking, oh, my bad jaw cannot take a punch. But he saw my eyes dart towards that knife drawer. And he said gleefully, oh, you think you can pull a knife on me? I dare you to try it. And he shifted one arm and I ducked under and ran fast to the back room because I thought my purse was there. I was scrambling, looking in the sofa cushions. He stood in the doorway, another blocking behavior, said, are you looking for these? Just give me the keys. I want to leave. And I didn't say it quietly. I was screaming. He came at me and I turned. I had a college book on the sofa. And I swung the book when he came at me. And it did very little, but it gave me a moment to get past him. Now, he never put a mark on my body. He told me he would never give me any evidence. And as I ran out of the house, he was screaming behind me that I had hit him with a book that I'd go to jail if I called the police. And I believed him, so I didn't. I was a major cliche that night, leaving with the clothes on my back and nothing else. I slept in my car in some really bad neighborhoods in New Orleans a few terrible nights. He had taken all of my access to money within the previous six months, even the credit cards that were my own and in my name. I had under $200 in cash. 
I paid cash for the cheapest, it was so gross, hotel that I could find for two nights just to be able to sleep and take a shower. I had a cell phone and he'd call and berate me. I didn't know I couldn't answer it. Didn't even know I could have that simple boundary of not answering the phone. Within weeks, I'd leave again for the final time and I'd never go back. I had met him at a counselor's office, a counselor that had been colluding with him behind my back. So in all honesty, I cursed them both out, said I wanted a divorce and left. If you're in an abusive relationship, I want you to know that if you're in immediate danger, call 911. For anonymous confidential help 24-7, you can call the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 1-800-799-7233. 7233 is the word for safe. Or 1-800-787-3224. There's also a wonderful curriculum through the Robin and Dr. Phil Foundation called Aspire Curriculum to teach you all about domestic violence and how to get out, how to make a plan. I got out and I am so happy. I know that when you're in it, you cannot imagine that you can get out. You can't imagine the strength that is available to all of us, that is available to you, that you can find. You can change your circumstances. There are so many more helpful people in this world than we realize when our world feels small and dark. I left with almost nothing and no help from family. I had integrated myself into his big family, and they turned their backs on me. The work that helped me find myself and break the cycles of abusive relationships to date in a healthy way before I met Chris and knew that he would be healthy, knew that he did not have any of these red flags, was work to grow myself, to learn what it was to respect myself. To learn what self-love really is, what self-care really is, and it's so much more than bubble baths and, frankly, talking to a therapist an hour a week or less. It's finding the core of who you are, who you were meant to be, and who you want to be. And it's learning through the work of boundaries, how to keep your self-worth in and never let anybody take it away ever. It's how to have boundaries so that I don't allow my puzzle piece to fit with someone who's dysfunctional, to say no. And when I say no, that changes my puzzle piece. Too often we don't know till we're so much older, till we've been through so much unnecessary pain that it was always our jobs on the personal level to take care of ourselves, and to disallow what is dysfunctional. Boundaries work has saved my life. It's why I'm passionate about teaching you and why I have lovingly annoyed y'all advertising this course through the past few months. I definitely could teach this course to a smaller group and charge lots and lots for it. I choose to teach this way to allow as many people as possible to find this work to learn that they're not alone and that change is truly possible. In such a big group, we will see people in every level of healing. All of you are welcome. 
We heal in layers and you will take from the course from the layer where you are. And you will see people who have been in the course more than one year and you'll be able to hear how they have been growing year to year too. We will be doing boundaries work and self-respect, self-love work till the last breath of life leaves us. It's the plight of the seeker. The 2023 Boundaries course is now open. Use this early bird code. It's early bird 23 to get $100 off the full price or choose a very accessible payment plan. Pick what works for you and come secure your spot. Head on over to emotionalbadass.com backslash boundaries to learn more and sign up. Thank you for holding space for my story. Thank you for being open and willing to grow yourself. There's so many messages in the world that so many people don't. You're being brave and strong by leaning into developing yourself as a human being. This life can be happier, more peaceful, more fulfilling than we might even let ourselves believe when we're in pain. I hope that I am showing you that healing is truly, truly possible and it is available to you. I'm an emotional badass. You're an emotional badass. And together... We are where Moxie meets Mindful. I'll see you right here next time. Light and love. Bye-bye. Mm-hmm.